I was sharing with someone that we were going to be installing the hearing assist units, and uh, the gentleman commented, well, good, that way people can switch over to a better sermon if they're not enjoying what you're saying. No, we didn't get those devices. <laughs> well, this Thursday, I woke up as discouraged as I've been this year. And I was having lunch with Papa Mel, like I do on most Thursdays. And I said, Papa Mel, what do we do when you're discouraged? And he said, uh, you need to identify what's discouraging you and then bring it to the Lord in prayer. And as I began to examine some of the things discouraging me, I think it's the constant bombardment of discouraging news that we're just battered with every day. And there's still more riots and protests, and there's still more people being accosted in restaurants, and there's still more conflicts, and the nomination of a new Supreme Court justice candidate is only going to lead to more acrimony in the hearings and ugly news cycles. And then there's going to be the presidential elections beginning this Wednesday, and that's going to be nasty, and the news reports will be nastier, and the November elections are not going to resolve anything, and it's just going to get worse. And that's on top of COVID and economic strains and people being isolated and lonely and depressed and interpersonal conflict. It's a very discouraging season right now. And it's not just happening in our nation, it's happening to our nation. You can almost feel the states being pulled apart. You can see the conflict rising. More and more word, uses of the word succession are out there. And for us as Christians, this is on top of several years of discouragement of feeling like we've lost strategic cultural battles, where now there's open opposition to Christianity and overt hostility towards Christians, and we see the infringement of religious liberties. And so all of these things just keep piling and piling up, and we're left saying, so what are we to do? And how do we respond as individuals, as a church, as a Christian community in America? And of course, God gives us answers to these questions in Scripture. And so three weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 11 and asked the question, what do the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Well, we take refuge in our Lord. And that's how we not fear and flee, but we continue to do righteous and trust. And then two weeks ago, we listened in on the end of the Sermon on the Mount and we saw that we can build solid foundations even while society's foundations are being shaken. And so as we're able to endure the winds and the waves, we can help others rebuild. And we can encourage others to build on the solid foundation of Christ and His teachings. And then last week, Bob Palencia reminded us that we're going to keep reaching out into our neighborhood. And we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves because we don't just insulate. We don't just lock the doors and stock the cabinets and load up on ammo and run to the hills. We're going to continue reaching out and helping and loving because that's who we are. That's what Christians do. And so I love the motto of the Texas Rangers, you can't stop a good man in the right that keeps a coming. And you can't stop a good Christian in the right that keeps a loving. And so we're going to keep loving God. We're going to keep loving one another. We're going to keep loving our neighbors. And that's what we do. But we also need to uh, address some specific things that are going to be coming up. And so this coming Thursday and the one after, we're going to use our midweek fellowships to talk on Christian citizenship. And this coming Thursday, I'm going to talk broadly about what does it mean to be a citizen of two kingdoms, to be a citizen of heaven, but then also a citizen of Albania, Algeria, Austria, any other country. And then the Thursday after that, I'm going to address Christian voting. And so we as citizens of America, how do we offer faithful praise to God in that way of expressing our citizenship? 
And so we're just going to walk through some categories and ways of viewing not just this election, this or that candidate, but in general, how do we approach voting as Christians in a democracy that we have that right, that privilege, that obligation. And then on Sundays, we're going to begin studying the book of Daniel. Because Daniel was written in a day when Israel was in its darkest days. It had been kicked out of the land. It was under the judgment of God. They were under a pagan nation, one after another, living in exile. And Daniel and his friends had to address the question, how do we as God's people live in a godless society? How do we respond when things are darkened? How do we live? And where's our hope? And how do we stay faithful? How do we not be discouraged when everything around us is so discouraging? And the basic message that Daniel is going to reveal to us is stay faithful, stay hopeful, because God is sovereign and he's going to make all things right. And so would you pray with me as today we introduce the book that we will then begin studying in chapter one next week. Father, we again thank you for the opportunity to come together as your children and to assemble as saints. What a privilege it is to belong to a family and as our lives are scattered in different directions throughout the week that we can regather for a family reunion and we can encourage one another and enjoy one another and edify one another, pray for one another. And we do lift up those that aren't yet able to join us for health reasons or various other causes. And we pray that you're blessing them and that you bring them often to our mind, that we can call them, reach out to them, that we are together even apart. Father, we do confess that it's easy to read the news and get discouraged and even to grow anxious, perhaps some to despair. And yet those aren't godly emotions. That's not how sheep of the Good Shepherd should be following him. So we pray that you would encourage us, instruct us, use this beautiful book to strengthen our faith, to give us fresh perspective on the sovereign God who is in charge of the rising and the falling of the nations, who is able to preserve and, his, preserve and protect his people in furnaces and lion's dens, and remind us of where our hope lies, which is the coming of the sun someday to set all things right. We'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our Bibles are broken up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the word testament means covenant. So it's referring to the old covenant that God gave at, Moses, uh, gave at Sinai through Moses and the new covenant that Jesus Christ established in his blood. And the Old Testament has three main parts. It has 17 books of history, and then it has five books of poetry, and then it has 17 books of prophecy. So we go from history, poetry, and prophecy. Daniel is a prophetic book. And the 17 prophetic books fall into three main periods. Twelve were written before Israel was exiled into a foreign land, and so they are called the pre-exilic prophets. Two were written during the exile, Ezekiel and Daniel, and they're called the exilic prophets. And then another three, another three were written after the exile, and they're called the post-exilic prophets. And so that situates Daniel within the context of Scripture. But the main thing that we have to understand to understand the book of Daniel is Israel is in exile. That God created Adam and Eve to be in his presence, but when they disobeyed his command, he evicted them out of the Garden of Eden until one day he restored them as he promised. And when God now called Abram to form a new people, 
And then through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then Israel went into Egypt, and God delivered them out of captivity and brought them to Sinai. And Moses, through Moses, God entered into a new covenant with his people, that he would be his God and they would be his people. He would be the bride, they would be the bridegroom. He would be the bridegroom, Israel would be the bride. He would be the father, they would be the children that he was adopting. God was entering a formal covenant with them that he was going to bless them and preserve them and protect them and let them flourish and thrive in a land that he was going to provide. Provided that they keep his laws, that they obey his commands. And if they didn't, God warned them that I will bring drought and that will produce famine. And then there might be plagues and then you might experience infertility among your animals. And then there might be defeat by your enemies. And all of these disciplinary actions of a good father who wanted his children to obey so that he could have the relationship with them that he wanted was to cause them to repent and to return to him and to obey. And so we know as parents that there's nothing our children can do to make us stop loving them. But when they disobey and defy us, our love has to take the expression of, of, of discipline because that's what love looks like in those contexts. And that's not the way we want to enjoy the relationship, but their disobedience now compels us to love them in that way. And the final judgment that God threatened Israel with was expulsion from the land, that they would be removed from the promised land, that they would be in exile for 70 years to make up for the 70 Sabbaths, the, 77, the 77th years that they were to hold the land fallow, and God would get those Sabbaths back. So as we approach Daniel, Israel is under the judgment of God. They're not in Israel. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in the promised land. They're in Babylon in captivity because they had defied and defied and defied and now God had judged them. And so we see, for example, in the book of Leviticus, God says, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you were in your enemy's land. And the land will rest in its joy at Sabbaths that you neglected to give it. But if God's people confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and the uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity, then God would remember the covenant with Jacob, remember the covenant with Isaac and Abram, remember the land and restore them. Because God says, in spite of this, even when their lack of obedience has led to them being in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Now, Timothy said, or Paul says to Timothy that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he can't deny himself. And God gave this promise to them in Leviticus, likewise in Deuteronomy. Moses warns the next generation before they enter the promised land that if you disobey, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. They're dead idols. They're not the living God. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. And when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. You'll obey Him. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. 
He will not fail you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. The Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods that you have not known until they repent. And then God would receive them back like the father and the prodigal son. At the end of Deuteronomy, he says again, the nations will say, why has the Lord done these terrible things to this land of Israel? Why this great outburst of anger? And people will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. And therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in that book. And he uprooted them from the land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into other lands as it is to this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of his law. Obedience is a really big deal to God. One act of disobedience was enough to get Adam and Eve expelled from Eden. One act of disobedience was sufficient to warrant either an eternity of separation from God in hell or the price of his son dying on the cross to restore us and to give us the opportunity for heaven. God is so holy, we have no estimation of how much our disobedience grieves him or how it costs us. And the consistent message of the Bible, not just Old but New Testaments, is obey God. Jesus would say, if you love me, obey me. If anyone loves me, he will obey my commandments. And odds are, if there are things that are causing pain and suffering in your life, one of our first responses needs to be, God, is there an area of disobedience that is bringing this pain on my life or something I need to repent of to be reconciled to you? And Israel was in that estate. Nehemiah, before the wall was rebuilt, knew that the reason that they had been exiled was because they had violated the covenant. And Daniel's own interpretation of why they were in exile and what God was doing, he reveals in Daniel 9. In his prayer of repentance for Israel, he says, God, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. And so the curse that you warned of in the Mosaic covenant has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we sinned against him. And thus he has confirmed his words, which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us this great calamity. So Daniel, what's your interpretation of why you're serving as a slave in a pagan court? Well, because we disobeyed God and this is what God warned us would happen and we are in judgment. And that's exactly what's going on. That's why we're here. And our only hope is that we return to God in repentance and now renewed obedience and then God will restore us because he's a faithful, gracious God. But Daniel is writing in Israel's darkest days. Israel is writing during a time, or Daniel is writing when Israel is experiencing the worst judgment that God had warned of. And he is not even in the promised land, but in a pagan land, in a foreign court, as a slave, because God had said this is exactly what's going to happen. So that's the biblical context of the book of Daniel, and that's the covenantal context of the book of Daniel. Now, with regards to the historical context of the book of Daniel, when we look at biblical history, there are, first of all, after Adam and Eve and the kicking out of the garden and the flood and the Tower of Babel, when God calls Abram to himself, that begins a period of what are known as the patriarchs, the fathers of the nation of Israel, the fathers of the Hebrews. Hebrews. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then just as God had told Abram would occur, Israel went into captivity into Egypt for 430 years until God delivered them out with a mighty right hand and during the exodus brought them through the wilderness to Sinai and then across the Jordan River into the Holy Land during a time of conquest, after which Israel was ruled by judges. And for a brief period, 120 years, they were united as a nation, 40 years under King Saul, 40 years under King David, 40 years under King Solomon. But when Solomon died, the nation split into 10 northern tribes called Israel under Rehoboam and two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, under King Jeroboam. And now we have a divided nation. Up until 722 B.C., when the northern tribes are taken into captivity by Assyria because they would not abandon their idolatry. From the very first king to the last, they were only worshiping other gods, and so God kicked them out of the land as he had warned. And not learning from their lesson, in 586, the same thing happened to the southern tribe. And this is what's happening during the time of Daniel. Eventually, God would restore them, and then the Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi. Now, with regards to what's going on in the region, because we need to understand these things to understand the book of Daniel, Assyria was a great Near Eastern power that rose to rule and took over the ten northern tribes of Israel, and they fell to the Babylonians that then ruled until they were conquered by the Medo-Persians, those ruling in the area of modern-day Iran, they will be defeated by Alexander the Great, who after his early death, divides, or his empire was divided among four of his generals, who rule until they in turn are conquered by Rome. And we'll see these same general sweeps of the empires because Daniel is going to be prophesying these. Hundreds of years in advance, Daniel is going to reveal through God exactly what would happen in human history to encourage us that God doesn't merely just know what's going on in human history. God doesn't just know the future. God is in charge of human history. God is sovereign over the rise and the fall of nations. God has decreed what will happen. And so we stay faithful and we're not overly alarmed when there are changes politically that upset us and even cause us great pain and suffering. So throughout all these messages, Daniel's going to come through with one primary reminder. Stay faithful. Stay hopeful. Because God is sovereign and he promises to set all things right. Now the geographic context of Daniel. Daniel started out as a young man and a young teen in Jerusalem until General Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city and took Daniel and a group of youths into captivity in Babylon, 900 miles away, which would have been a four-month caravan journey, and that's about the distance between Dallas and South Dakota. And so our family used to make some trips from uh, Texas to Pierre, South Dakota, and that's a long drive, even in a vehicle. But it was a four-month journey that these were taken into, and there were three different sets of deportations. One in 605, where Daniel was taken into captivity. One in 597, and then a final one in 586, when the city was destroyed and the temple itself knocked down. The author of the book of Daniel 
was someone who used Daniel's notes and Daniel's writings to compile Daniel's visions. And so the book of Daniel is going to be broken up into a narrative of different episodes of Daniel and his friends at the king's courts, and then Daniel's visions that he gives in the first person. So when we move into the second half of the book of Daniel, it goes from third person to first person, and Daniel begins to say things like, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I, Daniel, observed. I alone saw the vision. I, Daniel, looked. And then Jesus also confirms that Daniel was the one that received and reported these visions. He says in the Gospel of Matthew, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. And so Jesus attributes Daniel's visions to Daniel. Every New Testament writer refers to Daniel, and every chapter of Daniel is referred to in the New Testament. This is the book that gives us the fullest sweep of God's work in human history in all of the Old Testament. And there's really nothing like it in the Bible other than the book of Revelation, which relies heavily on Daniel as its spine and backbone. It was written uh, sometime between 536 and 515 from when the last historical reference is given and the temple began to be rebuilt. This would have been about the time that the Roman Republic was being established and the Buddha claimed to be enlightened. And that sets it on the world stage. Now with regards to the person of Daniel, this is one of the great heroes of the faith that God endorses on numerous occasions. So through the angels, Daniel is told, you are highly esteemed. You are a man of high esteem. O man of high esteem, says the angel. And then God says through the prophet Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would only deliver themselves. So think about Noah. Here is this great man of righteousness that walked with God in a corrupt age. He was the only one that God saw to be obedient. And here's Job that God would say to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. Who would you put on level with Job and with Noah? Daniel. That's rather incredible if you stop to think about it. And then of those three, God says sarcastically, Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that is a match for you. So Daniel is one of the great heroes of the faith. Uh, if they had prophet or prophetic or hero of faith bubblegum cards, he would be the one you'd be trading for. You know, we should be having his poster on our wall, his tattoos on our arm, you know, rightly do we name our kids after him because this is one of the great saints of the Bible and one of the few that really doesn't expose a flaw. You know, even Joseph does some things that you kind of, hmm, I wonder. But Daniel comes through, at least in the biblical count, with a spotless record of one who did right, who was incorruptible, who refused to worship the false gods, who refused to stop worshiping the true God, who excelled in his age and was a blessing in his nation. And the Bible says, I'm telling y'all, look at him as a role model. This is someone that you should pattern your life after. And part of the point of the book of Daniel is going to be, how do we live our life in a godless age as godly people? Like Daniel. 
And the Bible explicitly holds them up and says, be like Dan. Do what Dan does because he's one of the great ones. Now, another unique thing about the book of Daniel is it's written not merely in Hebrew, but also in Aramaic. And so the beginning of Daniel is in Hebrew, and then chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and then in chapter 8 it switches back to Hebrew. Aramaic was the land of the Aramaeans, a Semitic people in northwest uh, ancient Near East, and this was the lingua franca, the predominant language during the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Like English is today and France was before, Latin was at one time, Greek was at the time of the New Testament. This was the common language of the ancient Near East. So now why is that? Well, some think that the later compiler of the book took Daniel's personal notebooks when he was a youth, that we have the account in chapter 1, and then the end of his life, when he has his visions, he wrote those in Hebrews. But during his days at court under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, during those official court records, they would have been written in Aramaean because they were an Aramaean-speaking court. And that's one theory. Another theory is that the beginning of the book and the end of the book focus on the Hebrew nation, while those middle chapters 2 through 7 talk about the Gentile nations and the rise and fall of Babel and the Medo-Persian and the Greek and the Roman empires, etc., we're not sure, but it is a distinctive of the book of Daniel. We have more Aramaic in Daniel than any other book of our Old Testament. So if you were to structure the book around the languages, you would get a threefold outline. That God elevates Daniel and his friends in Babylon, which is in Hebrew. God demonstrates his sovereignty over Israel's Gentile oppressors, which is in Aramaic. And then God reveals his plan to rescue and restore Israel, which is in Hebrew again. But more typical is to divide the book of Daniel in two parts based on the point of view going from third person to first person and a change of genre from narrative to apocalyptic to a form of prophetic language that deals with visions of the end times. And so the commentator that I'll be relying heavily on for this series, J. Paul Tanner, writes this. The book of Daniel contains two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 present accounts of Daniel and his three friends in a foreign court. And chapters 7 to 12 contain four apocalyptic visions. Each account and each vision expresses the same important message. In spite of present circumstances that make it appear as if evil is winning the day, God is in control and will win the final victory. Now, there are a bunch of commentaries on Daniel. And they take a wide array of perspectives on some of the prophecies. So just to let you all know, I will be referencing many of these, but the one that I'll be relying on primarily is one that came out in 2020 by Dr. Tanner. Because of the endorsement it received from my Old Testament professor at Dallas, a man named Eugene Merrill, whose opinion I esteem greatly. And he said this about this commentary, if any of y'all are wanting to follow along. Every generation or so, a book comes along that becomes a marker of before X or after X. Paul Tanner has written such a book. As a student of Old Testament history and eschatology, I've had occasion to give at least passing attention to almost everything written on Daniel in the past century. And without qualification or hyperbola, I judge this work by Tanner, masterful in its use of Hebrew and Aramaic, without peer in the depth and breadth of its citation of relevant resources, and engagingly delightful in the clarity of its literary style, will become the standard in its niche especially in evangelical scholarship.
And so uh, this will be the one that I look to most heavily as we move through these chapters. So our outline of the coming weeks, Daniel first begins with six chapters of court tales, narratives of episodes that happen at the court of the kings. We'll see uh, Daniel and his three friends consecrate themselves and God exalt them to high positions of influence. Then there'll be the dream of the statue and the stone that smashes it and replaces it. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the fiery furnace. And then the great tree that gets chopped down that represents the humbling of the proud king. The handwriting on the wall with Belshazzar's feast. And then Daniel in the lion's den. So we'll be able to recover some of our Sunday school lessons and these great vivid accounts that are actually part of this narrative. And then in the second half of the book, we get the visions of Daniel, of the four beasts, of the ram that's butted away by the goat, of Daniel's prayer of repentance and God's responsive promise of the Messiah to come in 77s or 70 weeks, of the angelic understanding given to Daniel about the future events, the coming conflicts both in the near future and in the far future with Antichrist. And then Daniel gives us our first explicit reference to the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the wicked and the righteous in Daniel chapter 12. And the primary point of the book is the book of Daniel was written to encourage God's people to remain faithful in a pagan land and hopeful during a time of judgment in light of God's sovereignty and his promises to set all things right. That'll be the purpose statement, the reason for the book, the objective that we return to again and again. And obviously that's very relevant for us today. So just highlighting some of the key verses and themes in the book of Daniel. In chapter 1, Daniel, when he's brought into captivity into the court of the king, says that Daniel consecrated himself not to defile himself with the king's food. That when God's people are living in a pagan culture, the first thing we do is consecrate ourselves to obey God and not be corrupted by the pagan culture around us. And then Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that's interpreted to say that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Running from the beginning of the book to the end is this promise of a coming king who will establish a coming kingdom that will be righteous and just and forever. And then we'll never have to worry about a new Supreme Court justice because there will only be one judge. And we'll never have to wonder about another election cycle because there will only be one king who's eternal. And the great hope from beginning to end is not in any empire of this age, but the one who will come at the end of the age. In the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you that we are not going to serve your gods. So not only do God's people not defile themselves, we do not worship the gods of the nation around us. And God is able to preserve, and God is able to protect and even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bend the knee to a pagan god or to an idol. And then Nebuchadnezzar, after he's humbled, gives these beautiful words. Praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Whether that's an emperor of a pagan nation, whether that's a defiant, disobedient nation, Israel, 
whether that's a nation like America, whether that's a church, a culture, or us as individuals, that God can humble the proud. In the lion's den, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence or corruption inasmuch as Daniel was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. That another primary lesson for living as God's people in a godless age is we will not be cowed or intimidated into refusing to worship the one true God. And it doesn't matter what law they pass, we will continue to pray. And it doesn't matter what they threaten, we will continue to worship the one true God. And then we move into the visions. That to him, the one like a son of man who was able to approach the Ancient of Days on his throne was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom will never be destroyed. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our expectation. And a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue, destroying mighty men and the holy people, that there will be an antichrist opposing him. Seventy weeks have been decreed to the coming of Messiah who will make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. The angel giving understanding, God interpreting what he's revealing. The Antichrist will exalt and magnify himself, speaking monstrous things against the one true God. And then the promise that there will be a resurrection one day. And those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Some the faithful to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And in light of these court tales, in light of these narratives, in light of these prophecies, in light of these visions, how do we respond as those living in a discouraging time in a pagan age? We're going to remain faithful and hopeful because God is sovereign and is going to set all things right. So yesterday, Jennifer Brown spoke to the ladies on meditation about focusing on a particular passage of Scripture or biblical truth long enough for it to really seep in. And she gave a wonderful analogy of a tea bag. And in order for the water to get any of the tea flavor, you have to get it out of the bag and in the water. You actually have to open the bag and put it in. But if you only dip and pull, all it does is tint the water. And if you put it in and leave it a little bit longer, well, then it gets a little bit of coloring, but not much flavor. But the, really what you want to do is to put the tea in the water and let it steep and to let it sit and to let it sink and to meditate and reflect and ruminate on it. And then the truth begins to come out. Well, I woke up in the middle of the night last night and I thought about your illustration that Nock had shared with me. And I began meditating on Daniel. And I thought about Daniel in Jerusalem, not in Babylon. And we don't know the exact age that he was taken captive, but likely as a teenager, because after three years' instruction, he was able to serve as a leader in court. So around 15 years old. So Daniel grew up in Jerusalem in the darkening days of Israel. And during the time of Daniel in Jerusalem, Israel's king was a puppet of Egypt's pharaoh. And he had to watch this once great nation be maneuvered and manipulated by a pagan power. And he went to a temple that had already given away much of its treasures to buy off other nations so that they wouldn't attack them. And the priests weren't what they were. And the sacrifices weren't what they were. And the economy wasn't what it was. And the people weren't. And everybody knew that the ship was going down and it was dark and darkening. And Daniel had to go through that. And then he was there when General Nebuchadnezzar came to the city. 
and sacked it and took Daniel and many other noble youths into captivity. So Daniel was separated from his family, separated from his home, taken into captivity 900 miles away into a place that he didn't speak the language, he didn't know the culture as a slave in a pagan court. And how despairing that must have been. How discouraging that must have been. How intimidating that must have been. And Daniel lost all of his support structures, of his family, of his people who shared his religion, of people who spoke his language, of all that was familiar, all that was robbed of him. And now he's forced to serve. The general that took him captive had became emperor, and he's forced to serve him. And they threaten him, you have to eat this food. And at that young age, Daniel was able to say, I will not defile myself with the king's food. And to do that in a way that wasn't defiant and foolish, but respectful and politic. And then rise in excellence to serve in faithfulness in a pagan court. And Daniel reminds me a little bit like Forrest Gump. If you remember the movie that he met JFK and then he met LBJ and then he met Nixon. Well, Daniel's not only going to meet, but is going to serve as a leader in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian, of Belshazzar his son, of Darius the Mede, of Cyrus the Persian. He not only went through those administrations, he served as a leader of it, serving God faithfully without compromising anything that God required of him. That Daniel refused to worship the pagan gods. That Daniel refused to stop worshiping the one true God. And he stands out as a peerless example despite all of this at a time when Israel was under judgment. And they were not hearing from their God other than a sporadic vision here and there. And God was speaking to the pagan kings rather than the Jewish prophets. And Daniel was still ready to receive his word. And they didn't know when they were going to return. And they didn't know what it would be like when they would return. And in this dark and darkening age, in this discouraging and maybe even despairing point in their history, Daniel stayed faithful. And Daniel stayed hopeful. And why? Because Daniel knew that God was sovereign and that God had promised to set all things right. And Daniel's going to be a beautiful and inspiring example for us in this discouraging day to be faithful to stay hopeful because our God is sovereign and he is going to set all things right. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for sending your spirit to inspire certain men to write words that have your authority because they're your words. And they are inerrant because you make no error and you tell no lie. And they reveal to us things that we couldn't have known otherwise about what you're doing in human history. And the specific prophecies that were given and fulfilled give us confidence that the prophecies yet to be fulfilled will be because you are faithful and you are indeed the one who raises up and puts down kings and empires. And so, Lord, we thank you for this encouraging opportunity to study someone who lived in a darker day than our own but didn't despair and didn't compromise but stayed faithful and true and we pray that as we spend this week's learning from him and through him, that you would likewise lift our hearts, let our joy be undiminished, that we might be a witness to an anxious age. Let our faithfulness be undeterred, that our fidelity might give verity and vallication to our gospel and what we believe. 
Would we refuse to worship false gods? Would we refuse to not worship the one true God? Would we be faithful in our country without compromise, but also without abstaining and running and rebelling and defying? Father, thank you for teaching us how to live godly in a godless culture and how to live hopefully in a hopeless time. Thank you, Lord. Would your spirit move through this text these weeks to give us the hope we need, to give us the faithfulness we need as we wait for your son to come. And we'll ask this in his name. Amen.